This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Gopi Kalil is chief evangelist for brand marketing at Google and author of two great books. One is called The Happy Human and the other is The Internet to the Internet, Five Ways to Reset Your Connection and Live a Conscious Life. Gopi works with Google's sales teams and customers to help grow customer brands through digital marketing. Before joining Google, Gopi was on the management team of two Silicon Valley venture-funded startups. And while a consultant with McKinsey & Company, he worked on engagements helping management teams of large companies to improve business performance and maximize their revenues. He's also led large IT projects for global companies based in India, China, and the United States. He earned his bachelor's degree in electronics engineering from the National Institute of Technology in India and has MBAs from Wharton and the Indian Institute of Management. Gopi is an avid yoga practitioner, triathlete, public speaker, global traveler, and Burning Man devotee. He's spoken at TEDx, Renaissance Weekend, the World Peace Festival, and Wisdom 2.0. In this episode, Gopi and I discuss his book, The Internet to the Internet. We also talk about his journey in bridging Eastern philosophy and Western technology, how he integrates the life of the East, and the life of the West, and his tips for how to live a more meaningfully connected life in the digital age, one of our favorite topics on this show. Well, I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would much appreciate it if you would rate it and leave a review on iTunes so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it too. Now, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from the wise and worldly Gopi Kalayil. Gopi, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you, Stu. Such a delight and honor to be back on your show and in your presence after having been one of your students from years ago. And you said, you know, I'm a cool guy, but I have to say that when I was at the Wharton School, we used to talk to friends and say, you are one of the cool profs at the school. Oh, my gosh. So what did we pay you to say that at the opening of the show, Gopia? <laughs> that's a side deal that our, that Patty, our producer, made with you, I'm sure. No, but that's very kind of you. Um, well, one of the great uh, joys of my life and career is to is to have ongoing relationships with students who become alumni, especially alumni living uh, such substantial and significant lives as you, Gopi. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, so um, it's great to have you here. What we do on this show you know, is, is to talk about the connections between work and the rest of life. And 
the topic that you are so wise about and have written about in this great new book um, is one that we have addressed many times, the distractions of modern life and the intrusion that many people feel of technology. We've had scientists, psychologists, and many other people addressing this this critical issue, which is it's just present in all of our lives. And in some ways, you are kind of at the center, maybe it's the pinnacle of technology at Google and in your role there. And yet, you have found a way to bring yoga to Googlers or yoglers, as I think you call them. Um, yes. b- before we get into the 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 five ways that, that, that you have observed and, and write so eloquently about in your book about how to reset this conscious connection to life. Let's just talk a little bit about your remarkable journey from India to Wharton to Google. Uh, so could you give us that? I know it's a long story, but uh, you know, just for our listeners, give us the context. How did you get here? Well, it, it is a long journey, but the short version of it is just the hunger and thirst to see much of the world and experience the fullness of life on the planet, I would say, is what really led to it. And one of the paths that many people choose, especially from that part of the world, mm-hmm. is through education and professional life. So um, starting from a fairly modest kind of family background, uh, the search for education, business school, engineering school, and then professional expansion of career, and eventually directing my sights at coming to the U.S. and going to graduate school here and working in Silicon Valley is really what led to that journey and why Hong Kong as an in-between stop. But Mm -hmm. I would say that that was really the end goal in picking what I thought would be a great life experience, both in terms of educational and professional growth and eventually coming and working in the Silicon Valley ecosystem because I knew early on Mm -hmm. that the field of technology was where I wanted to pursue my career. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you knew that. But first, let me ask, what was it that you learned from your early family life, which is something that's important to us all, but you write so uh, clearly about that. What was it that uh, your parents and your grandparents instilled in you that gave you this um, this this sense of... Uh, you know, being on a quest for, for useful knowledge that took you uh, to, to far-off places. How did they teach you that, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I don't know. They specifically taught me a technique, uh, too, but I do know that given that they came from a set of limited opportunities, they had to step outside of that, and and by force of our circumstances itself, we had to be a little adventurous. So in the classic tale that is retold in many families in parts of the world, um, my dad leaves his family and rice farming community mm-hmm. and with not much going on behind him, not even like formal educational qualifications, no college degrees and no real skill set, and then goes on and and, and builds his career in, in small towns and other places around India. And eventually... And just through the street smarts, he went on to learn and speak said nine languages, which wow. he knew would be the way to connect to people. I would say the single mm. biggest skill that I've you know, learned from him is just how to connect with people and that emotional intelligence that comes in, or social intelligence, mm-hmm. that is a huge driver of your success. And as part of it, 
to take himself outside of his comfort zone and go in search of new environments and know that you can learn, you can teach yourself skills, and there is a large body of human knowledge out there that you can tap into, and the more you learn and apply it, the more you thrive in whatever you choose to do. But mm-hmm. along with the way, I think one key piece of wisdom that I picked up just by watching him at play is that so much of our life, almost all of our life, is based on interdependencies with other people, yes. and therefore the network of relationships you build is so crucial in how you do and what you choose to do professionally. So he really taught you a lot through his own example about how to exactly. learn and how to continue to grow your own capacity through connections, meaningful connections to people who are different than you. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's like a, and which is why, you know, as much as the internet is a great technology to connect with uh, with information and objects and people. There is this whole network or relationships you have to establish with other people at a very, very human and uh, humane level that we've all done as uh, as a species. And and that was like one of my biggest takeaways that in the midst of all of the technology, both the inner connection and our social connections with other people are fundamental, and that is never going to change. So you, you had a, an early grasp of the importance of technology, and you, you, you gravitated to that field. How did you know that that was something that was going to be important for you and for the whole world in terms of the, you know, the emergent digital age back in the day? Well, I wish I could say that I had a very clear idea of how <laughs> the world would look. I, didn't, I, I can safely say that even five years ago, I didn't have the, the very little idea of how things would evolve and have evolved as of now. Really? When I was, yeah, when I was at Wharton, the internet was just about beginning to get popular. So that was, you were class of 1998, let me just, uh, for listeners. Yeah, Yeah. and if you told me that, that we would have, last January, for example, uh, February, we hit an inflection point when the number of mobile devices in the planet is estimated to have exceeded the number of human beings, 7.2 estimated mobile devices. And the fact that we would now carry in our pockets uh, 7.2 billion, digital right? technology, the size of playing cards that allows you mm-hmm. to listen to music, order milk, check in for your flights, and, uh, and, and take photographs and send... Oops. Lost a connection. Um... There was an interruption in the network, but we're right back again. It, how ironic, though, right? That we're talking, <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about basic human connection and the power, the the incredible, unfathomable power of uh, this technology. And when we lose it, boom, we we lose that connection. So, Thank I, you. and it's a humbling reminder that anything can get disrupted. Yes, and part of what these practices teach you to do is to be unflappable through the course of it all and uh, bounce right back. Yeah, well, that's that's what we're trying to do right now. So, um, you you were talking about how much has changed and how even over the last five years, the the transformation of uh, of our lives through the through the you know the digital age that is so rapidly advancing, you couldn't have predicted. How can that be that even over such a short period of time that things could change so far so fast? Yeah, it is remarkable, and I think it's a culmination of uh, several factors. The first and foremost is I think there is a just this amazing energy that is manifest among human beings in terms of 
being innovative and creative and looking at different problems and situations in how human beings live, work, and play and trying to um, come up with very, very creative solutions. And just one example of that is uh, you know, Travis Kalanick at Uber, who, as the story goes, was one day frustrated that he couldn't hail a cab in the rain and he saw a lot of cars going by in the same direction and had imagine what if I could mm-hmm. somehow communicate with that person and say, hey, I, give me a ride since you're going in that direction and, and, uh, and I'll make a small donation. And out of that, just trying to solve that simple problem of and occupying an empty seat in a car going in your direction is what led to this amazing service that uh, called Uber that more and more people are using and you can see popping up in more and more cities. And that's what I mean by there is this tremendous energy of human beings mm-hmm. looking at these kind of things and saying, let me come up with a creative way to solve the problem. But supporting all of that, there is this powerful underlying platform, a collection of technologies, we broadly call it the internet, backed with many other pieces from giant databases to clouds to information that is available and open sharing of standards information, many, many things I can point to, that was simply not available Mm -hmm. to us three, four years ago. And I think we're just taking advantage of all of those uh, pieces. And there is this just creative outpouring of fantastic solutions to various kinds of mm-hmm. interest, passions, problems that human beings are having. It's, it's such an exciting time, and yet it's, it's for many people, a frightening time. And in your wonderful book, uh, the, Inner, the Internet to the Internet, helps to remind us or, and really provide some guidance uh, about how to uh, continue to, let me say, stay human in, you know, in the context of the, the digital revolution. So what do you mean by, let's start with, you know, in getting into the, the meat of the book, what do you mean by the internet? Yeah, it is a play on, obviously on the words on yeah. uh, play on this most popular and uh, one of the iconic words of our times, the internet, which most people understand, which is this collection of technologies that connect us to, all of the world's information to other people, other objects, right. and uh, that we get, we all use it. But in the midst of all this, I also wanted to just send uh, the message that the most important connection that all of us have is the one with ourselves. And as much mm. as you know, we get enamored by these amazing technologies, there is one technology you and I, Stu, and every one of our listeners gets to use every single day, and I playfully refer to it as a technology, but in some ways, mm-hmm. I think of it as the most sophisticated, most complex technology that is known to humankind. Now, that is right there inside of our body, our brain, our, our body, our breath, our consciousness, mm-hmm. and it is an important technology, if you'll allow me to uh, call it so. And and I say it is highly complicated, sophisticated. We barely begin to even understand. And all we have to do is to watch, say, a three- or four-year-old learn language and learn rules of grammar, et cetera, without being formally taught grammatical constructs. And if you just watch a you know, toddler pick up language, and that's fascinating. How does a brain work and learn all of these things? And you realize you are dealing with one of the most sophisticated computers and neural networks that uh, you can imagine. 
Now, all of our life experience, too, is filtered through this particular technology, the internet, if, uh, to use that word. So if it's a piece of food you eat or if you're trying to process this conversation you and I are having or mm-hmm. listen to a piece of music and uh, it is making an imprint on your mind and your emotions, all of that is filtered by this inner technology called the Internet. And therefore, understanding it, nurturing a relationship yes. with it, and mm-hmm. knowing how to fully use it is an important predicate of the quality of our life. Absolutely. And, of course, that is the quest for all of us, right, is to is to have... Uh, as deep and rich an understanding of who we are uh, and our connections to the rest of the world. So uh, tell us a little more about uh, these five ways that you write about in the internet, to the internet, uh, that help people to develop that kind of consciousness and capability uh, in, in today's digital environment. And I think, by the way, the analogy that uses is a lovely one, and it really helps to, to, to bring it home. But the the five ways, briefly, uh, what are they? Yeah, the so I thought of how do you you know incorporate these practices because the way to find that moment of respite to connect with these inner technologies is known to humankind, and there have been elaborate practices and wisdom traditions that have been developed, whether it's yoga or meditation or various other practices. Mm-hmm. But I was kept asking myself, how can I make it all work for me in a way that I will actually stay consistent with it. And I came up with these five rituals that I practice on a regular basis. And this is what I talk about in the book, as well as in the TEDx talk Mm -hmm. that I gave years ago at Berkeley, which really was the origins of this whole thinking. And the first one is, I call it, focus on the essential, meaning know clearly what is most important to you. Mm -hmm. Because if you know very clearly what is important to you, you know what to say yes to and what to say no to. Perhaps more importantly, the latter, right? Exactly, because in living the kind of frenzied lives that we live with technology surrounding us, with so much information coming, you're constantly being pulled in different directions, asked to respond to different things. And if you know what is essential, you know how to say yes to a few things and say no to most other things. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the five rituals I tell people to you know, be clear about it. In my own case, there are five essentials that I've come up with, and without even getting into the detail, this way I know what are top, my top five priorities, and I focus on them uh, and spend most of my energy and time on those. The second ritual is something as simple as do one thing at a time. And there's nothing new or sophisticated that I'm telling you about. Everyone has heard some version of it. But it's it is incredible the extent to which we go around modern life thinking we'll be the first generation in history to be able to do five things at the same time and be able to successfully execute. Wait, what? And, I was just uh, checking my email. Sorry, Gopi. I, I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, you caught me also. I was responding to someone's chat and my phone just went off. Hold on a second. Ah! So, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. See, the, the thing with this brains to our brain is that yes. it's extremely good when it's focused on one task, ask it to do five things, mm-hmm. it is it falls apart. And even with all of these people who 
have these debates about how we are now being increasingly wired to multitasking. Mm-hmm. And I asked them the simple question, if you had to go for open-heart surgery, how would you feel if your surgeon said, hey, I'm also interested in baseball and the stock market, so in the operating room, I'm going to have the TV on, turn to two channels, and simultaneously yeah. keep an eye on the game and the stock market. And yes. make you uncomfortable. We'll have mad money you... and the Super Bowl happening while I'm cutting your heart open. Would that be okay exactly. with you? <laughs> Which is why, whenever you see examples of peak performance, you know, if you look at a virtuoso musician, they never sit there rehearsing a piece while still watching something on uh, TV. So right? one thing at so a time. One thing at a time, simple idea, but it seems to actually help you get more things. Absolutely. Focusing on a single thing. And the third ritual I talk about is pick whatever it is allows you to connect to the internet, however broadly and expansively you may define hmm. it for yourself. It might be going out for a walk in the park or playing with your baby or, or reading poetry for me, it is yoga and meditation. I say, come into just one minute every single day. And that seems like trivial. One minute. One minute every single day. Of, yeah. of connection day. to the inner net. That is yeah. what is essential is inside of you. you mm-hmm. Yeah. And so just a minute? minute meditation, just a minute. And the idea being, bring it down to the lowest threshold that you can't say no to. Because most people understand the wisdom behind it, but they'll tell you, I just don't have the time. I'm too busy. I'm of course. traveling. But if you commit to yourself to just one minute, this is, you know, I stumbled across this when a good friend of mine at uh, Google, his name is Meng, who's the author of the bestseller, Search Inside Yourself. Yes. I told him the struggle with trying to have like a daily practice around yoga and meditation. And he looked at me and said, Gopi, why don't you start with one breath? Mm-hmm. Even if you're trying to meditate for one full hour, it's really 600 breaths strung together. Mm-hmm. You have to get past one breath to get to the second and third. And uh, since I'm a compulsive neurotic overachiever, I said, <laughs> man, I can do better than that. I'm going to go a whole minute. So that was the <laughs> genesis of this. But still, what happened It's, it's was, essential. What happened, at least in my case, was now a week went by, two weeks went by, and for the first time in my life, I could look back and say, I actually did my practice every single day, even if it was for just a minute. Mm-hmm. But at least you feel like you have integrity towards it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then what came next was the delightful surprise, too. And that is on most days, I would sit for a minute on the cushion meditating or commit myself to one minute of my yoga practice, a couple of sun salutations. Mm-hmm. And the minute would go by, and the next thing, I would know my mind would be saying, this is so wonderful, so sweet. Why rush up to go do something else. What else can be that is more important? Mm-hmm. And then one minute easily so extended to three minutes and five minutes and ten minutes. So that was a way by which I could overcome the hurdle. The fourth ritual, and finishing up the five quickly, the fourth ritual I talk about is among the 168 hours in your calendar where we all feel that most of the time it gets hijacked by someone or somebody else's schedule. At least pick one that is uh, non-negotiable slot on your calendar every single week, once a week, the same time when you will commit to something that, again, nurtures your internet. So it's like a one-hour long okay. commitment. So that's... And in my case, Monday, 5.30, I teach the Yoglers class. And for nine years, if I'm in Mountain View, I have never missed a class because that's non-negotiable. We only have about a minute or so left, so I'm, uh, and I hope that we can continue this conversation and g- get further along uh, at some other occasion, but can you sum up here with, what are the other two practices, just in brief? 
to leave us. Yeah. So number four, I mean, the fifth one is that even as you use social media to connect with thousands of other people, make sure that you take time to friend yourself. So listen to the tweet from your heartbeat, listen to the chat request from your brain and the status update from your body is that final piece of that uh, wisdom among the five rituals. How do you do that? By taking that one minute, at least to begin with, and, mm-hmm. and finding whatever is your practice for inner connection. Like I said, for me, it is the time on the yoga mat or meditation or journaling or doing a gratitude practice that just allows me to step away from the noise and frenzy of what the technology around me is asking me to do and refocus on what's going on in my mind and my body mm-hmm. and connect with my inner net. It seems so simple, doesn't it, uh, as, as you speak uh, to these practices, and yet uh, that's sort of the point, isn't it? It is, it is very simple, theoretically. It is very hard to practice, and that's why you call it a practice. It takes an entire lifelong and a lot of work and mastery. But enjoy the journey of the discovery. You'll fall off the wagon often. You'll fail. I fail every day. But just getting back on it and trying again and just making one tiny step forward is itself part of the process, part of the joy and enjoyment of uh, establishing that connection. That is the essence of it, I would say. Yeah. Gopi, thank you so much uh, for sharing your wisdom with us on this on this uh, conversation on our show tonight. Gopi, really appreciate you taking the time to join us uh, this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Stu. Pleasure to be talking to you again. Thank you for having me on your show. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Google's Gopi Kaliel and that it provoked your thinking, prodded you to come up with some new ways to think about technology and human connectivity. It's perhaps ironic that thought leaders inside the most influential technology companies like Gopi at Google are among the most outspoken teachers of methods for staying human, let's call it, in an increasingly tech-driven world. We're only at the dawn of the digital age and the psychological and social knowledge we need to harness the immense power of technology is emerging, but slowly. We're just starting to figure it all out. And so it's wise to invest some of your attention to the matters of how to use technology for good and how to deter its potential for harming our capacity to attend to what's really most important in our work and in the rest of our lives. So here's a challenge for you, an invitation. Why not try out Gopi's advice on determining what's essential for you? Or follow his suggestion about doing one thing at a time. How does thinking deeply about what's important to you change the way you might use digital technology? Or, if you choose to experiment with what I like to think of as unitasking, as opposed to multitasking, what happens? Do you accomplish more when you limit distractions and narrow your focus on one thing at a time? 
I would love to hear what you discover, so get in touch with me directly, friedman.wharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. And if you'd like to learn more about improving performance in all parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, by creating greater harmony among them, it is possible, and probably more possible than you think it is, visit totalleadership.org, where you can find free chapters of my books and lots of free tools and tips. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends family, and co-workers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.